are listening to the Battle Preach podcast, Battle Preach show on the Fort Clinton podcast. And uh, we're coming to you live. We're not really live though, but I'm here. We're live as we're recording this. We're live as we're recording. I'm Brian. I'm with my co-host Paul, uh, my sidekick, my lieutenant, my Scotty Pippen to Jordan. What else? Those have no, those bear no resemblance to each other. But I'll, I'll take you it. You just kill my Scotty intro. Pippen Whatever. Is, right, you, I'll take that. You, you know what, Paul? You that. intro the show, okay? You show me how it's done. <laughs> you intro the show. But you actually do have a, a, a good hot take. We, we, we start every show with a hot take. Uh, this is the crowd pleaser. So uh, let's just do this. Let's Hit me with your hot take before we actually dive this? into the, okay. to the, to the meaty stuff, to the good stuff. Mm. Since we're starting a new Christmas series, I felt it would we be are. appropriate to uh, disclose my view on eggnog. Okay. It's disgusting. I know. I agree. Okay, good. Eggnog I is you gross. Would. I feel like it's, don't they put alcohol in eggnog? You can. Right. And I that think makes it tastes better, but yeah, it it's is. It's an excuse to be a drunkard. It's just, it's yeah. thick. It tastes like liquid eggs. Horrible aftertaste. Is it oh, eggs? Man. It is. It's eggnog. Yeah, it's what, made with what like, in the world? it's like egg Why yolks. Would you do and, that? I don't can know. you imagine if they added goat cheese to it though? <laughs> What an abomination. <laughs> While listening to the Beatles. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would vomit. So I what, can't. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, yeah. I never got eggnog. I don't get it. It's, it's disgusting. Like, it's the worst Christmas drink. Like of cider. Yes. Hot chocolate. Like you've got all these other things. Eggnog is just really low on that list and it's disgusting. Not worth drinking. What? I'm kind of curious what actually started. How did somebody invent eggnog? It was by Wait, accident. Like he just accidentally fell on the floor and like eggs and cream fell into his mouth and he was like, no, I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. But it sounds well, like. I, but I'm just, there's someone sitting there like, you know what? I wish I could drink eggs in a socially appropriate way. You know what I mean? And I want to just add alcohol to. It sounds yeah. like a drunkard's yeah concoction. I know. Just liquid eggs and yeah, alcohol. I, know. Like, and, I really like to drink. Well, just put them in eggs. I know. <laughs> you know, we'll just do this. I don't know. Maybe, you know what? Maybe it's for the protein content. But then there's all the sugar, which negates it. It's it's so sugary. It's so creamy. So it negates yeah. all the good stuff. It is amazing. So does the egg just add texture to it? Or? It makes it thick and like gloopy oh, and people like this. Is it's like, like, it's like drinking, drinking yogurt. <laughs> oh, disgusting. Uh, actually, Ooh. that makes it sound worse. You've succeeded. Listen, I challenge any of our viewers to make a case for eggnog. Right? If you leave, a, how about this? If you leave a review and you give us five stars, <laughs> you will be permitted to write your case for why eggnog is socially acceptable or has any redeeming quality whatsoever. That is not even like remotely not manipulative. There I are too many knots in that care. sentence. I don't. You, you're a philosopher. You care about ethics. I just. I don't What's care. your go-to Christmas drink then? I mean, just a classic hot chocolate. So you're I mean, a hot you chocolate go, guy. Yeah, Swiss Swiss mm. mix. You like Swiss Miss? That's like. Yeah. Uh, you know what though? You gotta drink that immediately, or else the the uh, little marshmallows dissolve. They, 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 there's like a there's like a twenty second half life on this thing. Like they I, just immediately dissolve into the thing. It's not even like amazing hot chocolate. Like it is. I used to drink that as a kid until I realized you can make hot chocolate just by melting chocolate and adding milk. <clears throat> it tastes like four hundred times better. Hmm. Well, sorry. I know. Whatever. This is me being pretentious again. You <clears throat> do it all the time. I know. So okay. This is a, a really exciting little series we got, a little mini series for the yeah. holiday season, trying to keep it festive. And, uh, you know, one of the things we want to do with That'll Preach is we want to have interesting conversations about theology and culture and things like that. And, uh, you know, we just kind of shoot from the hip. We just go for it. 
That makes it sound terrible. Right. And it is terrible, but you're listening and there's no getting out of this now. So uh, what we decided to do is we want to do a little mini series on Christmas. Nice. Uh, we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about the Messianic promises, how the Old Testament promises the events of Christmas. Really important. Mm -hmm. We're talking about some Christmas myths next week. Yeah. Uh, and we're I think the week after that, we're going to talk the about origins of the origins our of favorite Christmas. Christmas traditions. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a nice little history lesson, but more engaging in uh, the typical that'll preach style That's that you've come, become accustomed to. <laughs> and then we're going to do one on the meaning of Christmas. So uh, hopefully sounds we can... like a Hallmark movie title. I know. <laughs> the I know. meaning of Christmas. Well, we're single mom working. finds her like love of her life in a soup kitchen and they have Christmas together. Exactly. There you go. And, and but you know, this is going to be a good opportunity. Some of you are driving home. Some of you are going to be spending time with family and you want to an escape from that maybe pop in your headphones your earbuds your airpods whatever and listen to that'll preach and get some uh invigorating edifying theological wow, tidbits that was from a, us. like a five syllable word yeah i'm well, proud of you i'm growing invigorating i'm growing invigorating. that would be a lot of points in scrabble so <laughs> let's talk about the messianic let's promises do it. let's do it and uh this <clears> is a huge theme i mean one of the great things when you when you read the gospels mm -hmm. especially matthew and and luke and well and mark i mean if you, yeah 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 i just if you read the gospels especially all <laughs> three of the them, all four of them yeah <laughs> uh you'll notice that there's a lot of old testament quotations yeah and we have to remember that the gospel writers are jewish people right and they grew up in a world that in a culture that understood themselves as part of a great story being unveiled by god mm -hmm. they view themselves as part of god's unfolding plan for the world and so when they quote the Old Testament, they're simply saying Jesus and all that he does and all that he is, is a continuation of a story that stretches all the way back to creation. Hmm. And that the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. There's all these loose ends that haven't found their conclusion and the gospel writers are going, all those loose ends now find their conclusion in Christ. So it's like there was this massive jigsaw puzzle. Right. And then Jesus is like the last piece right. that fits in and they step away going like, Oh man, you can see the finally see the picture now. And we see that in I think it's in First Corinthians when the Apostle Paul says all the promises of God, or maybe it's Second Corinthians, one of the Corinthians, of the where Corinthians. He says that all the <laughs> all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That is one of the Corinthians. Think about Luke twenty four, the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is resurrected. He's walking with disciples, and he opens up the yeah, Old Testament yeah. and shows how it points to him. Mm -hmm. So, really, what we're trying to do is we're looking at God's inspired commentary in the Old Testament in the New Testament. Right? The apostles are giving us the infallible, inerrant, Holy Spirit-inspired meaning of what these Old Testament texts are pointing to. So a little bit of nuance to that. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. But that's why it's so important. We, we, we just want to view Christmas in light of God's whole redemptive purpose, the whole story that he's telling from, from creation. From the start, yeah, yeah. 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 So this is something that uh, hopefully you guys will find uh, strengthen for your faith and give you a, a new look at the Bible and, and hopefully give you a richer understanding of the meaning and the, the purpose of Christ's coming uh, in, 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 the, in the gospel Christmas narratives. Yeah. Why don't I give a quick overview and then you could comment on the Old Testament stuff as, yeah. as you like. So the roadmap is like from, from the start, from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis three, right after the fall, you get this, uh, God tells Eve, the, the serpent is going to bruise the heel of your descendant, but your descendant will crush the head of the serpent, right? right. So you, you, they're setting up this, this theme of 
there's going to be a hostility between the offspring of Eve and um, the enemy, but the offspring is going to triumph. And you get that from the beginning of the story. And then you get Abraham and God makes his covenant with Abraham and he promises to bless the entire world through Israel, through the descendants and offspring of Abraham. And then you have that covenant affirmed again with God and Jacob. And God promises that Jacob's seed and offspring will be a blessing to the world. And then you have that reaffirmed with Judah, Jacob's son. And then you have that reaffirmed again with David, that David's line will produce an heir, an offspring, a Messiah to the Jewish people. And so all of this, like the New Testament is always looking beyond itself, like you said, to this New Testament fulfillment. To something is coming that's going to solidify all the pieces and all of it is, is outward looking. It's looking beyond itself to this, this figure, this person who is kind of amorphous. And, you know, we see hints and glimpses and shadow. And we see like, you know, Melchizedek and strange people in the Old Testament that we're like, who are these? Who are they like pointing towards? And Jesus is supposed to be the culmination figure of, of that kind of narrative arc. Right. And, and that's a great summary because there are two major concepts to understand with Old Testament prophecies. First one is what's called dual fulfillment, hmm. right? And, and the things that you're mentioning, the seed, Abraham's seed, David's line, all these things, what you'll see in the Old Testament, and we'll actually get into an example of this when we get to Isaiah 7. Mm -hmm. But what you see in the Old Testament is you have a, a prophecy of something that God's going to do, a fulfillment that happens near to that prophecy, right. but also a further fulfillment that's greater later on. Hmm. So think of near fulfillment and then a further greater fulfillment. So if you think about David in 2 Samuel 7, I think, yeah, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God promises David that uh, you're, you're always going to have a descendant on the throne, mm -hmm. right? That you're going to have an offspring that's going to be glorious. He's going to bring a kingdom, all that stuff. Now, the near fulfillment is Solomon, right? right. Solomon yeah, is yeah. the one who takes over and uh, builds the temple, builds a temple yeah. and, 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 and is the line mm -hmm. of David. The problem is, Solomon doesn't rule forever. Right. And in fact, the kings don't last forever, right? You see in first and second kings, the, the, the monarchy is a, is a disaster. Mm -hmm. So Solomon can't be the final fulfillment of that prophecy because God said, David, you're gonna always have a descendant on the throne. And so it's looking for a greater, more complete fulfillment. And we find that that is Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we see him as the son of David. Why is that so important? That's a messianic title saying this is the fulfillment of what God promised in 2 Samuel 7, that David will always have a king sitting on the throne. And Jesus is the king because he never dies. I mean, well, he dies, but now he's raised and he lives forever uh, as the Davidic king. Hmm. So he's the final, full, vibrant fulfillment. It's almost like the near fulfillment is in black and white and the final fulfillment is in color. Or it's like the first... Partial fulfillment is is like a, a foreshadowing, right? A or like, foreshadowing, like a type right, before right. the complete thing is there. Exactly, yeah. and, and that's the second thing. The first one is dual fulfillment. There's mm -hmm. a near fulfillment, and then a later greater fulfillment. Right. The second concept is called typology. Okay. Yep. And the idea of typology is there are patterns, foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament. Mm. So, uh, the the common one are the three roles of prophet, priest, and king. Yep. So. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, one day there's going to be a prophet that's greater than me mm -hmm. uh, that'll come. Okay. And so Jesus, in his ministry, he has a prophetic ministry. What is he doing? He's preaching the law. He's preaching the word of God. He's uh, somebody who comes with the word, the very words of God, right? Uh, there's also prophecies of a priest. 
Psalm 110 speaks about that, right? And talks about uh, there's going to be a priest in line of Melchizedek, right? And what priests are, are they are intercessors. They are the people who stand between man and God. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate intercessor because he is both man and God. And he stands as our high priest before the Father. Hmm. We also see in Psalm 2, a messianic king. Psalm 2 talks about how God has anointed the king and treats him like a son. And through that king, he's going to conquer the nations. So there are all these hints that the kingship of Israel's king is not just going to be reserved for the, the, the nation itself, but it's mm-hmm. going to actually extend beyond the borders of Israel and all the nations are going to war against him, but they're going to ultimately be subjugated by him. So again, these are the all the little hints and foreshadowings of Christ. Now, it's not accurate to say that Somebody in King David's day would read Psalm 2 and be like, oh, they're talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They don't know that. But they have enough of a, if you think about a shadow, what does a shadow do? It shows you the general form Mm -hmm. and it points to the substance, the person. But you would never say that the shadow is a person. Right. So they have enough to get a general outline of a messianic figure. And then when Jesus comes, they realize, oh, that matches the shadow. This is what it was all pointing towards. Mm. So again, Dual fulfillment and typology are two ways that you can get get into the the mind of the apostles on how they were interpreting Jesus and how Jesus interpreted himself. It's almost like in Star Wars. Oh, and I, I don't know much about oh, Star Wars. But <laughs> Here we go. Like the one who's going to come to like bring balance to the force, right? You've got these echoes of someone who's finally going to come on the scene and... Right, I, I don't know anything about Star Wars lore, but I at least know that much. I thought you were going to go Lord of the Rings and be like, It's like in Lord of the Rings when Boromir takes Faramir to Gondolor and takes the sword and destroys the man on the what eagle. Do you have and, I don't know, that's just what it sounds like. It's just, me. it's no one talks like that. And two, no. it is just like the greatest story ever. Okay. But yeah. My foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Foresh- yeah that, that's just like the basic... Yeah, so the Old Testament is just foreshadowing, giving us this glimpse right. of something that is yet to come. And if you really want to get a rich view of the of the Christmas narratives, go look in Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, which have the most mm-hmm. Old Testament quotations, and go look at the Old Testament passages they the actually references. quote. Yeah. And basically flip back to the original one, read it, flip back to how the New Testament ta- authors comment on it, and you have your own little, like I said, your own little apostolic study guide. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, you'll find that, wow, this, there's so much depth to this narrative that maybe we're not aware of. Mm. So now that we have the overarching picture, let's dive into some of the actual like Christmas nativity prophecies. Let's do it. Let's do it. So in Micah 5, this is the, the famous one that talks about Bethlehem being blessed because it's going to have, it's going to house the savior of the world, essentially. Right. And... Uh, this is the one where Herod, you know, looks into the Old Testament, like wants to figure out where's the Messiah going to be born. And all the scribes and all the Jewish leaders tell him, well, it's Bethlehem, because this is what Micah says. And so he sends his soldiers into Bethlehem. Um, so, I mean, that's that's pretty cool that you've got this like hundreds of years before Jesus is born. You've got Bethlehem being, you know, touted as this important place. This place is in the middle of nowhere, essentially. But God is going to gift the world, the Savior and the Messiah in this like little backwater, like outside of, you know, the middle of nowhere in Israel. Um, so that, that, that's a cool one. Uh, well, you see in, in this, if you look in Micah 5, the actual original context, you see that uh, this ruler comes from Bethlehem and uh, that he is going to be a ruler in Israel. 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So that so from ancient days. So that that harkens back mm. to Daniel seven, yeah, talks yeah. about uh, the uh, the God sending a son of man on a That's cloud right. as a ruler, growing this kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a king in Micah is so important because Micah's a prophet, and one of the things that the prophets are always concerned about is Israel's uh, self sovereignty. Right. The, one of the issues they're always dealing with is when when they go into exile. So you think about Daniel, he goes in exile to Babylon. They've always got foreign powers. They've got foreign rulers over Mm -hmm. them. Gentiles are ruling over them. Even when they come back in Ezra and Nehemiah, and even under, you know, if you, people date Micah on different post-exilic, you know, but regardless, even when they come back from exile in Babylon, they don't have a king. Hmm. And they're under Babylonian rule. And then they're under Persian rule. And then they're under Greek rule. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, they're still under Roman rule. So the idea of once we get this king, that signifies the liberation of Israel from all foreign powers. And hmm. it signifies God doing the thing that he promised. I'm going to establish my king. I'm going to be uh, fulfill my promise. And that king will be a ruler that rules the entire world. All the nations will bring tribute to him. Hmm. So that's why this idea of king is so important. It's more than just, oh, a powerful figure. It, it, all the hopes of Israel are bound up in this figure. Right. And by extension, the hope of the entire world is bound up in this figure. And this is also why people like Herod were or felt threatened. Right. That God is going to give this, you know, supreme ruler, right. this person who's going to finally restore Israel to, you know, the way it's supposed to be. Um, so there's threats also to the current establishment, the current way of things. And Jesus' existence, his entire existence is a threat to those who are in power because it's there's this looming, like, I'm going to upend your way of right. life. I'm going to upend the current order, right? It's <clears throat> unavoidably political. Yeah. Right. I mean, you think about Isaiah when he talks about how the Messiah will have the government on his shoulders. He will have a government on his shoulders. It's not saying that the government's going to be after him. It's saying he's going to bring an administration of Mm. governance Mm. to the world. Right. And so Jesus comes as a ruler. Now, how that actually shakes out with the cross is another wrinkle. And we won't be able to get to that in this episode. But uh, there's just so many layers to it. Yeah, yeah. And the significance of kingship is is so central. I mean, speaking of that government passage, so let's. So Isaiah 9 is another big uh, messianic prophecy for Easter, right? That's or not Easter, Christmas. Wrong? Right. Uh, about six months early. Right. Uh, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, so this one, how, how do we see dual fulfillment here, right? Do we see something partial? This is clearly talking about someone in Isaiah's day and age, right? Some people say it's Hezekiah or, mm-hmm. you know, some some proximate figure. Um, but it's also like the New Testament writers see this as a as pointing towards Jesus as well, because here we've got, he's called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Like that, that's a lofty right. divine title, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, terms that are used of Jesus, like Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he's understood to be this way in the New Testament. So how, how do we see that dual fulfillment play out in this passage? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think people have attributed this to Hezekiah, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, a, a righteous reign of a king. And again, this is that near fulfillment and a full fulfillment. Right. Because in the same case with Solomon, there are certain details that fit, but then there's a, it's just not quite there. Right. Right. Solomon, first of all, doesn't live forever. Yeah, yeah. And his reign ends. Mm-hmm. Whereas the promise is specifically that the Davidic king, his reign will not end. And in Isaiah 9, Hezekiah see, is not the mighty God. Right. Yeah. He's not the mighty God, right? <laughs> he, his, his government does increase, but there's an end to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, he has flaws. <clears throat> Hezekiah makes some mistakes in mm-hmm. his life. 
He's not the perfect, just, and righteous king. Yeah. So it's reaching beyond this to say there's there's a greater king coming. Hmm. This is not the end of the story. Hope. Otherwise, it's like Hezekiah comes and he dies, and it's like, well, there goes that prophecy. That's kind of depressing. <laughs> right. And I think it's the beauty of the grace of God that he goes, no, I'm going to be your king. This is a, a little tangent, but I think it's interesting. If you think about it in First Samuel, the people want a king because they want to be like all the other nations. Hmm. And uh, Samuel, the prophet, goes, nah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Why? Because Yahweh is their king. Yeah. God is their king. They're in a theocracy. But they're not satisfied with that. And so God raises up Saul. That's a disaster. But then he raises up David. And so God takes their sin for request, and he brings about David. And then what happens? How does God ends up s- still becoming their king and our hmm. king by taking on flesh, coming as Christ? So it's this amazing weaving together of this narrative, right? God will become our king, and it's through, in his mysterious sovereignty, it's through their request for a human king. And so you see Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of that. I never thought of it like that. It's actually well, kind of kind of elegant. I'm here all night, folks. That's what I do. What about the, uh, so Isaiah 7, right? There's yeah, a lot of that's a classic one. Yeah. controversy about this. Uh, the this is the sign given to you. There's right. going to be a virgin. She'll give birth to a son. You will call him Manuel, which is where we get God with us, right? right? Uh, so some people want to translate that as virgin. Some people as young right. woman. So, scholars say they're pretty much indistinguishable, right? Like if, if you were a young woman in those days, you were taken to be a maiden. So that's not like too problematic for us as we read this. But who who would have been like the proximate or the near fulfillment of that? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 7, you know, uh, basically God talks to King Ahaz. Right. And uh, Ahaz, he basically says, ask me for a sign. Ahaz is like, no, I don't want to. And then he goes, no, you really need to, right? <laughs> and so God gives him a sign that he's going to survive. Uh, I think it's an Assyrian evasion. Yeah, invasion. yeah, yeah. Here's the sign. There's going to be a child named Emmanuel, right? And he'll be born to a virgin. Now, the actual word, you know, there's all controversy, like you're saying. It yeah. could just mean... Young, young woman. woman. Yeah. So she doesn't necessarily have to be a virgin. Mm-hmm. And that's fine in terms of this immediate prophecy. Right. So there was historically a child named Emmanuel mm-hmm. born at that time. And, mm-hmm. and God was faithful and he spared Ahaz from Assyria. So that's the near fulfillment. There wasn't actually a child named Emmanuel born of a woman. Yeah. Now, this is where the dual fulfillment part comes into play. It is true that the word virgin can mean virgin. Right, or it woman. can mean just young woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what the New Testament authors are doing is they're recognizing the wide semantic range of that word. Exactly. And going, because this is a plus one for women, because this is greater, this is a greater sign. Hmm. It's not just a young woman, it's a virgin. Yeah. A virgin Mary, who's going to give birth to this son. And this Emmanuel is not just going to be some kid. Right. He's going to be the Messiah, right? He's going to be God incarnate. He's, li- you know, remember in the original context, God says, you're going to have this woman's going to give birth to a child, mm-hmm. call him Emmanuel as a sign that I'm going to be with you right. to fight the Assyrians. But now it's a bigger fulfillment. Now it's quite literally God with us, God incarnate in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Mm. So it's a greater fulfillment, greater sign, because now she's actually a virgin. It's a miraculous birth. Right, right. And a greater promise that this is God dwelling with man uh, to be not just salvation from Assyria but from the forces of sin and death and corruption in the world. And it doesn't even have to be that Isaiah knows the full extent of what he's saying, right? Right. So he's speaking to his immediate context here, talking to Ahaz. Ahaz, this is the sign that God is going to give you. 
And now because scripture has this like, you know, like mag, like huge magnitude of like potential meaning, God can intend for words to have more than just the specific local application. So right. this is why the New Testament authors are justified when they look at this and they say, oh, wow, like now in hindsight, we look at Jesus and we see how that piece fits into the puzzle. And Isaiah's words here, while true in that specific local context, also had this greater um, context as well and, and fulfillment right. as well. So it doesn't have to be that like the prophets, as they're speaking, they're exactly. cognizant of yeah. the long Isaiah didn't lasting know effects. Right, right. That what the ultimate film was. He might have yeah. had a sense of sure. there's a greater purpose yeah, for yeah. it, but he didn't see Jesus. Right. Now, what's interesting is First Peter 1 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So basically saying hmm. prophets were like, okay, there's some messianic figure coming. We yeah, just yeah. don't understand it all. Yeah. And it says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So basically what he's saying is, the prophets had a sense that there was a greater fulfillment, but they realized that they were prophesying not for themselves, but for future generations. Hmm. So that when Jesus came, all the puzzle pieces would fit. So they were actually paying it forward to us. They didn't see it like we see it now, but they knew that they were serving a greater purpose. So I think that helps hmm. us understand where Isaiah is going, I don't know how this totally fulfills. Yeah, but, but there's something bigger. There's something bigger. Yeah, yeah. And until that final piece comes with the coming of the Messiah, it's not all going to click together yet. So we've got... Micah with right. Bethlehem. We've got Isaiah 7 with the virgin birth. Right. We've got Isaiah 9 saying that this child who's going to be born is El Gabor, is mighty God. Right. We've got uh, Psalm 72, one that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, May the kings of Tarshish and distant shores bring tributes to him, the kings of Sheba and Seba, right. presenting him gifts, talking about the Magi and the kings who come from the east right. to pay homage to the newborn Christ. That's and again, that's the ingrafting of the Gentiles. That's that's yeah. the worldwide yeah. worldwide rule of this king. That's Psalm two. Right, mm. the nations rage, and either they kiss the sun, meaning they show their allegiance to him, or they right. get crushed. Right, right, right. And uh, and if you go through, I mean, there's so many prophecies of the nations, the nations, the nations yeah. streaming, paying yeah. tribute, yeah. and you get this little glimpse of that that these Gentiles mm. recognize. This is. Not just the king of Israel. This is the king of the, the world. The king of the world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's right? huge. And I mean, Zechariah two ten. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming. I will live among you, declares the Lord. And note this: many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So here we've got the right. Lord says, "I am coming to you," but the Lord is also sending the Lord right. to come. So you've got this like this hint to the Trinity that's like kind of a glimpse, but not there. And again, like like you said, Brian, the nations, the Gentiles are being included. So as an Israelite, you might have looked at this and you know not paid too much heed, but this is actually foreshadowing and talking about that God's plan all along was to include all nations, right? From the covenant with Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Through right. you. So Israel is a conduit to the world through God, through which God's blessings are going to flow. It was never the end, right? Israel was the means by which God was going to bless the world and bring all of the nations and Gentiles and Jews together under one banner. And it's such, once you unlock that, I mean, the best way to understand the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament or the prophecies to Christ mm -hmm. is between, and I've used this in a lot of instances, but I think it's just a great analogy between a seed and a tree. Right, a seed 
is, in a, is a earlier form of a tree. It contains all the genetic material that a tree has. It's the same stuff, mm -hmm. but it's a different form. It's in an earlier form. And uh, the Old Testament is, is Christ, in a sense, in seed form. I think St. Augustine said the Old Testament is Christ concealed, the New Testament is Christ revealed. Mm, that's good. So now that the New Testament has come, the seed has budded, it's become a tree. It's the same stuff. It's the same genetic material as the Old Testament, but now it's fully bloomed, hmm. fully blossomed. You see the fullness. You see what it was all pointing towards. And so when you look at these Old Testament prophecies, you go, okay, you, all these interesting little hints about the nations, now they're fully bloomed. You go, oh, Christ is the king of the nations, mm -hmm. right? The Gentiles are now going to be co-heirs of Christ, right? That's the great mystery. Hmm. And... Uh, but you can see the little buds of it in the Old Testament. And I think the New Testament writers in, their, in composing the Christmas narrative are going, we're trying to show everything in full bloom. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so beautiful in Luke 24 when, again, I was saying in Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he's with these disciples and he goes, you know, this is all pointing to me. He's showing them the tree from the seed. And the disciples, it says that their hearts burned within them. You know, did not our hearts burn when he said this? Hmm. Because they realized this is the ending the Old Testament is searching for. Yeah, it's that final piece. It's that yeah. final piece. Hmm. And uh, there's so much in that narrative. You know, when you think, man, God became man to dwell with us, to save us. Um, that that there's an intimacy to the Christmas story that I think it's it, it, it's so humble. He's in Bethlehem. I mean, this backwater town mm -hmm. and, and all of God's massive purpose for the world are being fulfilled in this tiny little mustard seed of a place, right? <laughs> you know, this in, in, in the, in the most, uh, ordinary overlooked by the world place. Yeah. yeah. That's where God, and it just, it, it, it just, it, of course it is. Yeah. Right? I mean, Isn't that, that is, just how God works? That's God's MO. Yeah. Picking Abraham, picking Israel, picking right. always working through the least and the places that you'd least expect Right. goodness to come from so that he can show his glory in, in the smallest right. and the weakest. Yeah. It's, it's the, the wisdom of God is foolishness of the world. Mm -hmm. He uses it to shame the wise of the world. And Christmas is that story. Yeah. We celebrate the birth of this little baby boy. That's why it's compelling. Like you know? it's stuck around even, even despite secularization, even right. despite everything else, right? Christmas is still, you know, it's, it's consumeristic. It's whatever, sure, but, sure. but at its core, there is still that, that kernel of like, the, this tradition has persisted for so long. And I think it's part of just the compellingness of the story. And it it's just an opportunity to get people to reckon with Jesus. Hmm. You know, what is this all about? Yeah. We covered a lot of ground. If you yeah, guys, good stuff. yeah, there's a, if you guys want more information about this, you can look up the Bible project. They have a lot of great yep. stuff on prophecy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would just, I think RC Sproul, some good videos. There's just so much good stuff about this. I would encourage you guys to check it out. Hopefully this was helpful for you guys. We trust that it was. And uh, stay tuned. This is going to be a great series. Great for this upcoming season. Yeah, I'm excited. And we're going to keep the hot takes coming because oh, that's yeah. what we do. That's what we do. Thank you guys for listening. Leave a review. Catch you next time.